Well, let's approach the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on this morning's message. Father, we come to you expectantly. We come to you because you have spoken to us in your word. You have given us clarity in a confused world. So, Father, I pray that you would speak this morning through your scriptures and that your word would bring light. Pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, today I have the honor of speaking to you on the subject of race and racism from the scriptures. And this subject is dear to the heart of God, and it should be dear to the heart of every Christian. And God has spoken on this subject, and he has spoken clearly. He has spoken in a way that is not confused. And we have but to open his word to find the answers for humanity. I also come to you this morning with sobriety, knowing that the stakes, both in the church and out, are high. I've had friends professing Christians who have adopted the world's thinking on this subject. They have adopted what is called critical race theory. And it led them, it started them on a trajectory that ultimately led to their defection from the faith. You see, if you adopt the fundamental premise of critical theory that humanity is divided only into oppressor and oppressed, and that ultimately leads you to say that every single oppressed group in this world needs some kind of redemption, that they are precious to God. And the conclusion of that theory is that people that are oppressed like the LGBTQ community are also precious in the sight of God. And the Bible fundamentally rejects that premise. There is no compatibility between critical race theory and the Bible. Those who try to synthesize the two do so at the very peril of their own souls. These ideas are not to be adopted, but rejected. Now, on the one hand, let us reject critical theory, but let us also embrace what the Bible has to say on this subject. There is a better way, God's way. I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What brings Jews and Gentiles together in one body? Paul says here, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is so much stronger than the foolish wisdom of man. And we embrace man's wisdom at our own peril. 
And last week, Mike has spoken on the subject of justice, both on the world's understanding of justice, which is called social justice, and the biblical understanding. Social justice calls for equal outcomes. Biblical justice calls for equal treatment under the law. And I think this is so important to understand, and I think we as Christians need to be careful in our usage of terms. You might mean something when you use the term social justice. But what the world means when they say that is not what you, what you mean by that. And what's ironic about this concept of social justice or redistributive justice is that the haves right, become the have-nots, the have-nots become the have-less than they had before, and the liberators, the ones who were supposed to redistribute, become the have-everything, right? That's the ultimate conclusion of these ideas. And we were also introduced to the concept of critical theory, and as I said before, critical theory divides humanity into two classes, the oppressor and the oppressed. And the classification of humanity in these two groups is Marxist in origin. And that's so critical to understand because what is the ultimate goal of Marxism? It's revolution. It's political turmoil. It's a, it's a total destruction and dismantling of the very foundations of our society. That is why people are rioting and burning and tearing down. The whole American system, according to this view, needs to come down. And I would submit to you that they do so in the name of race and racism, but it's not really about race and racism. So my task this morning is to look at one subset of critical theory, the, the most prevalent sub, uh, subject or subset of critical theory, that is critical race theory. And this theory, and it is a theory, not a fact, has been sweeping across this nation. It has infected our government, our grade school, grade schools, our, our, uh, our universities and our workplaces. And this ideology is at the heart of the Black Lives Matter organization. Many of you have been subjected to diversity training, seminars, and forced to listen to lectures on the supposed problem of white privilege and white supremacy. But here's what's changed recently. There's been a change. Critical race theory used to be outside the church. It was something that the world taught. But this theory is now in the church. It's in evangelical churches and seminaries and organizations. Israel became like Canaan. The church has now become like the world. And that is why we are doing this series, because those ideas are no longer on the outside, but on the inside. Let me read to you several statements back this up. The leading evangelical denomination said the following in 2019. They said, evangelical scholars who affirm the authority and sufficiency of scripture have employed selective insights from critical race theory and intersectionality to understand multifaceted social dynamics. So you see, on the one hand, they're trying to affirm, hey, we affirm the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, yeah, but we are employing selective insights from critical race theory and intersectionality. That statement is contradictory. You cannot employ insights from an unbelieving worldview if you affirm the sufficiency of Scripture. They also said critical race theory and intersectionality alone are insufficient to diagnose and redress the root causes of the social ills that they identify, which result from sin. Yet these analytical tools can aid in evaluating a variety of human experiences. So you see they're, having, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, right? That, that this is not enough, but you know what? We can still use it because of the value of the observations that it makes. There was another seminary that put on a conference for women, and 
the speakers of that conference addressed the white women in the conference and said that the answer to racial tension was for white women to divest themselves of their whiteness. It's a quote for the, that was what they said, that that was the solution to the racial tension in this country and in the church. A prominent evangelical pastor and author tweeted just this week, I quote, black independence is kryptonite to white supremacy. The system can't handle a black person who realizes that they don't need the approval or attention of whiteness. It's costly but liberating. Hashtag build your own table. You could just get a sense from this tweet how divisive these ideas are. They're trying to paint humanity in either white terms or in black terms, right? This separation is divisive. So here's what I want to do today. We're going to see how critical race theory, and I'll refer to it as CRT, how critical race theory addresses race and racism, and then we're going to see how the Bible does. So let's first take a look at critical race theory on race and racism. Now, the origin of this idea began in the 1970s, and it was a response to a movement called critical legal studies. Critical legal studies was a leftist movement that denied, they denied, that law was neutral, that every case had a single correct answer, and that rights were of vital importance. However, the people of color in the critical legal studies movement felt marginalized and felt that this movement was not advocating for them. So they left that movement and began their own movement, making race the very center of their cause. Now, what's interesting to note is that critical race theory was a reaction to a leftist progressive movement that was not progressive enough, according to them. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. The most violent and aggressive expressions of CRT are in leftist universities and cities. Leftist groups welcome proponents of CRT, but then those proponents turn on them because they are not progressive enough. And the church should take heed here. For when the church and when seminaries and evangelical organizations welcome these ideas and proponents of these ideas as their friends, they do so to their own destruction. Racism. How does CRT define racism? It's critical to understand that CRT has redefined this word. Now, this was helpful for me because as I'm watching the news and listening to various statements, it's, it's like everyone is a racist. I'm like, no, time out. Everyone is a racist. But that, that charge is made all over the place, and here's why. Historically, racism meant viewing yourself or your people group as superior and someone else as inferior solely on the basis of your skin color or ethnicity. That was the traditional view, definition of racism. And according to that, I mean, that, that view is abhorrent for anyone to view themselves as superior solely on that basis. But that's not how CRT defines racism. According to them, only, only oppressors are racist. Let me quote from Robin DiAngelo in her book on white fragility. And this book is one of the primary books that is pushing this view. And she writes this. Racism, like sexism and other forms of oppression, occurs when a racial group's prejudice is backed by legal authority and institutional control. So prejudice must be combined with power in order to be racist. Minorities, those who are oppressed, they can be prejudiced, but not racist. 
So people like me are given a free card, right? We're given, we're not given the charge of being racist because we are supposedly in an oppressed class. And D'Angelo says this, when I say that only whites can be racist, you see that? Only whites can be racist. I mean that in the United States, only whites have the collective, social, and institutional power and privilege over people of color. People of color do not have this power and privilege over white people. Now, there, there is such arrogance in that statement. I know that you're a racist no matter what you say. No matter what you believe, no matter what you think, no matter your history or your experience, you, if you are white, are racist. And, and this is the premise of her book, if you argue back in defense of yourself, that just proves how fragile you are because white people can't handle, handle that charge. Now, now, just think about this for a moment, right? What if every minority, every person who is not a white in this country is told that all whites are racist, and all whites have something against them. All whites are trying to oppress them. What does that do to their mentality, their view of white people? It makes them angry, doesn't it? What about to white people, right? You are racist no matter what. If you defend yourself, that just proves the point. It makes them angry. You see how, how divisive, how destructive this view is. It tears societies apart. Every institution that takes on this view does so to their destruction. Now, one of the major problems with this view is this. If only whites are guilty of racism, then minorities, people like me, are deprived of our sanctification. And even if you grant CRT's distinguishing of prejudice and racism, how they define those two terms. Let me ask this. How many books, how many seminars, how many sermons are there that address the sin of prejudice in minorities? How many sermons, seminars, books address the supposed racism in white people? Right? You do the math. This definition of racism is also the reason that there is selective reporting in this country because the major news outlets and politicians highlight cases that advance this definition of racism because, according to this view, only whites are racist. Think about this. How many murders are there in this country? How many negative police interactions? How many positive police interactions? Why are there certain ones given airtime and certain ones not? Because some incidents advance the tenets and the presuppositions of critical race theory, that only whites are capable of racism. If you are only reacting to the latest death to hit the national headlines, then I would submit to you that you are being led to believe a particular narrative. Now, on a personal, there was a turning point for me within the last several months, right? That there were, there were deaths that were outrageous and, and, and totally wicked. And there was a collective outrage in this country over those deaths. But then time went on and there were more deaths. More deaths that didn't fit that narrative. That weren't reported on, that weren't, there were no protests over those deaths. And then... I mean, the, the bias just, just out there to see that there is one particular definition of racism and only that definition is supported with news coverage. Now, we know that news agencies are not impartial. There is no one who is impartial. They have an agenda, and many of them have thoroughly bought into the ideology of critical race theory. And as Christians, we are committed to knowing the truth, what really is going on, not just what we are told to believe. 
CRT also advocates this idea of white privilege, white supremacy, and systemic racism. Now, this redefinition of racism, according to CRT, is intricately connected with the terms white privilege and white supremacy. White privilege means that whites in this country are the beneficiaries by the, the mere fact of the color of their skin of certain privileges that are not afforded to others. It doesn't matter where they grew up, what kind of upbringing they had, no matter what kind of oppression that they were the recipients of, they have privilege. But the term white privilege is not enough for the proponents of CRT. Whites are guilty of this supposed white supremacy. Now, white supremacy, this is also where there's been a redefinition. White supremacy used to mean that people viewed themselves as superior to non-whites because of their skin color, and that is abhorrent. But that's not how this term is being used today. I cite D'Angelo. White supremacy is more than the idea that whites are superior to people of color. It is the deeper premise that supports this idea, the definition of whites as the norm or standard for humans, and people of color as a deviation from that norm. Now, this idea of white supremacy is at the heart of what's called today systemic or structural racism. D'Angelo says again, white supremacy in this context does not refer to individual white people and their individual intentions or actions. So she says, it doesn't matter what they think in their heart or what they do with their lives. Well, white supremacy is an overarching political, economic, and social system of domination. Again, racism is a structure, not an event. Now, I would submit to you that Christians should not use the term systemic Racism, because you might mean something by that term, but that is not how this term is being used today. D'Angelo is saying that, that white supremacy pervades every system, every foundational structure, every value in our society is inherently a product of white supremacy. One organization recently listed what they call the aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the U.S. And I'll put some of the, or some of the examples up here on the screen. One example is family structure. The nuclear family, the concept of a family as a father and a mother and 2.3 children. Okay, so put the 2.3 children thing aside, but just the concept of having a father and a mother in a family is a product of whiteness. The husband is the breadwinner and the head of the household. The wife is the homemaker and subordinate to the husband, a product of whiteness. The emphasis on scientific method, on objective and rational linear thinking is a product of whiteness. The Protestant work ethic, hard work is the key to success, you work before you play, is a product of whiteness. Religion. Christianity is the norm, and anything other than, Jude than Judeo or Christian traditions is foreign. That concept is a product of whiteness, according to them. Now, there are, there are cultural values that are non-moral, right? Some people love their kimchi, and some people love their mayo. Right? Some people love their hot sauce, and for others, you know, black pepper is a little bit too spicy. Now, that's not the point, right? But according to, to this organization, these ideas, these concepts are the product of white supremacy. Now you look at that and it's like, wait, time out. That doesn't come from white people. That comes from God himself in his word. Critical race theory is explicitly anti-Christian explicitly. That is why Christians cannot try to mesh the two, critical race theory and the Bible. They are incompatible. So here's the dangerous conclusion they come to. They say everything around us, every foundational feature, every belief or institution of this country is the product of whiteness. Therefore, everything must be torn down in the name of fighting Racism. 
Now, this is the position of the Black Lives Matter organization. They are an explicitly Marxist organization that seeks to destroy the biblical family, which they would call a Western read white family. Christians, genuine followers of Jesus Christ, cannot, cannot support this organization. Cannot. Because it is explicitly anti-Christian. Now that being said, there are those who would say that they could use the phrase without supporting the organization. And I want to make that distinction clear. How does CRT, critical race theory, define guilt, right? CRT says that all white people are guilty of racism no matter their personal attitudes. And this explains why a negative encounter between a white person and a black person is inherently racist. The intent of the human heart is not important. If a white cop mistreated a black person, that was a racist encounter. And here's the thing, unless one adopts the fundamental tenets of CRT, they are guilty of upholding the systems of racism in this country. And you've heard this phrase, silence is violence, right? Unless you speak out on supposed systemic racism, you are guilty of racism. What about people like me, right? Non-whites who oppose and wholeheartedly disagree with the tenets of critical race theory. Well, there's a category for people like me. I'm just a minority, they would say, who adopts and internalizes white supremacy so that I can obtain favor from whites who have the power. People like me internalize these oppressive ideas and then exactly what I'm doing today, I'm becoming a proponent of those ideas to curry favor, to gain status. And in so doing, I uphold white supremacy. Now, there are pejorative terms used for minorities who advocate against these ideas. Now, I find that notion offensive and, and frankly, racist, as if minorities right, can't think for themselves, that they, that they need the people in power to tell us what to think. Right? It's absurd. So this is how they view guilt. How do they view redemption? Redemption. What's the goal? If whites are guilty, how do they experience redemption? And here's the sad part. And Michael alluded to this last week. Redemption under CRT is impossible. Impossible. Let me cite D'Angelo again. She says, a positive white identity is an impossible goal. Her words, impossible. White identity is inherently racist. White people do not exist outside the system of white supremacy. And here's the, here's the goal. Rather, I strive to be less white. To be less white is to be less racially oppressive. That was the idea behind that women's conference where they said that they needed to divest themselves of their whiteness, to become less white. I don't even know what that means. She says, ultimately, D'Angelo says, ultimately, I strive for a less white identity. And she uses redemptive language here. For my own liberation and sense of justice, not to save people of color. So I'm doing this not for them, I'm doing this for my own redemption. Now, there is no redemption in this system. You can try to atone for your supposed whiteness by apologizing, by taking on anti-racist causes, by renaming food brands, by renaming colleges, by tearing down statues, but you can never, white people can never be freed from their whiteness. It's impossible. This is a system of salvation by works, Salvation by your own self-atonement. And we know, as those who believe in salvation by grace alone, through the finished work of Christ alone, 
that salvation by works is a never-ending, guilt-ridden system that ultimately condemns people to hell. There is no compatibility between critical race theory and the Bible. Now again, you get a sense for how destructive these ideas are. CRT is intended to, intended to divide, intended to rip people apart and to set them against one another. Divide and conquer, right? That is the goal. But there is good news. There is good news. God has spoken on the issues of race and racism. So let's now look to what the Bible has to say on race and racism. Let's look at oppression. First, let's address oppression. Is God against oppression? Well, it depends on how you define oppression. If by oppression, you mean the idea of dominance, hierarchy, and lordship, then the answer is no. God, according to that definition, is the ultimate oppressor. He rules, he asserts his dominion, he demands total allegiance, he imposes his values, his rules, his norms on us. He demands our unqualified allegiance. But he does so for our good because he loves us. Exodus 20, verses 2 to 3, God says, As I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. I am your God. You must obey. So perhaps all this angst against supposed oppression is really just a refusal to submit to authority and ultimately to God's authority. But if by oppression you mean man-stealing, slavery based on skin color, to systems of justice and the subjugation of the poor simply because they are poor, and a domination that harms, then yes, amen and amen, God is against oppression. Now, what's, what's tragic about holding to this vague notion of white supremacy as oppression is that I believe it cheapens the word oppression. It cheapens the word racism. If everything is oppressive, if everything is racist, then nothing is racist or oppressive. Do you know what true oppression is in this country? The slaughter of millions of babies in the womb. That is true oppression. Do you know what true racism is in this country? Margaret Sanger, the founder of Plant, Planned Parenthood, she founded it, quote, to exterminate the black population. She didn't use that word black, but to exterminate the black population. African-Americans made up 13% of the female population in 2016, but accounted for 38% of all abortions in that year, in that year. Now, as Christians, when we see true racism, true sinful oppression, we must speak. We must speak. So what is a biblical definition of racism? Where does racism come from? Racism comes from the human heart. And here's what Jesus said in Mark 7, 20 to 23. And Jesus said this, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, so what is the source? the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. 
The human heart is sinful, Jesus says. And from the heart comes evil thoughts, pride, and murder. Racism at its heart is sinful pride in one's skin color or ethnicity. And we should not cede this definition of racism because this is a traditional and classic definition. CRT, people like D'Angelo, are absolutely wrong to disconnect racism from the intention of the human heart because that is where it begins. Those who do not hold racist views are not guilty of racism, period. Now, the pride of the human heart can and does manifest itself in laws and in systems. Our own country has a legacy, a history of doing so. Slavery, forced segregation, laws that prohibited blacks from voting, and discrimination based on skin color were abhorrent. They were sinful. And they must, these kinds of laws must be overturned. They were expressions of the wickedness of the human heart. And Christians must be against these laws. We must pursue justice that everyone gets equal and fair treatment under the law. Now, let me just make this comment here that in our opposition to critical race theory, that should not prevent us from taking a sober and serious look at our country, at our laws, at our system to see where we can improve. I would submit to you that our current system of long-term incarceration is unbiblical. When you look at the Mosaic system, God's perfect intention for human government, right, where he ruled and reigned, if someone committed a crime, the punishment was not long-term incarceration, but immediate punishment and restitution. If someone stole, they had to pay back twofold. They were not locked up and, and put away for years on and you and I both know that that system, the system of long-term incarceration, does more harm than good. So we must take a serious and honest look at our system to see where we can improve. However, we know that merely changing the law is insufficient, is it not? Because the problem is much deeper than the law. The problem resides within us within us. And there is only one person who can change the human heart. And who is that? Christ. Christ. He can take out a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He, he can change our hearts from being hateful and murderous and spiteful and prideful. And he can put within us humility and love and grace. When I came to Christ, he expelled the unbiblical, prideful thoughts that I had. Just say to you guys that I used to think, and it's kind of funny saying this now, but I'm ashamed to say, I used to think that Asian people were just smarter than other people, right? We did well in the SATs, we got into good colleges, and I don't know, maybe just by the mere fact of our genetics, we were smarter. I remember talking to Pastor David about it one time. He was like, no, Luke, that's just, that's just not true. There's more to do with upbringing than anything else. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I think you're right there. Okay. So we should, we should search our hearts. And like David in Psalm 139, ask the Lord, Lord, search me and know me. See if there be any harmful way within me. And lead me in your way your righteous and everlasting way. Guilt. What does the Bible have to say about guilt? CRT says that all whites are guilty of racism, that whites are guilty of the sins of their fathers, that we are upholding a system that was put into place in the past by our own silence. But what does the Bible say? This is what God's word says in Ezekiel 18, verse 20. 
God says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what's God saying here? The father is not to be held guilty or be punished for the sins of his son. The son is not to be punished or held guilty for the sins of his father. They are each accountable to God for their own sin. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. We are responsible for repenting of our sins, not the sins of our fathers. The current generation is not guilty of slavery, nor guilty of the sins of its fathers, but we are accountable to God. Now, I think this, this understanding of guilt, and if I can put it this way, the imputation of America's past guilt on this current generation, and I would submit to you again that we are only counted guilty in Adam. We are not imputed the sins of anyone else except for the sins of Adam, Romans 5. But this understanding of guilt, that we are guilty of the American past, has direct implications when it comes to the subject of reparations. Now, the argument and the case for reparations is gaining steam. Right? It used to be kind of out there, but it is growing. There is at least one evangelical pastor, I know that it is more than one, that are arguing for reparations. Now, if the guilt of our fathers is ours, if we are guilty as a society of continuing to perpetuate racist systems, then an argument for reparations follows. Because if you are guilty, you should make restitution. We must pay back because we are guilty. Biblically, however, it was the guilty party, the one who had stolen, who must pay back the one who had been the victim. Think about Zacchaeus, right? He said to Jesus, if I have defrauded anyone, if I have defrauded anyone, then I will pay back fourfold. Should restitution have been made back when the slaves were freed and the Civil War ended? Amen and amen. But today, people are claiming that those who are not guilty, not guilty of the sin of slavery, need to pay back those who were never enslaved. There is no biblical argument here for reparations. If I could just turn you to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verses 4 to 5. Psalm 69, verses 4 to 5. <clears throat> And David writes this. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. And here's the question. What I did not steal must I now restore? And the obvious answer is no. If you are not guilty of stealing, then you are not guilty of restoring. Or you are not responsible for restoring. But verse 5, back to Ezekiel, right? We are responsible to God for our own sins. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. So David's saying, many are charging me with guilt, with stealing. But God, you know, you know my sin. I'm guilty of sins, but not what they're claiming that I'm guilty of. But the, the question is made, well, no, it's not, it's not you that we're asking to repay, right? It's the government, right? It's the government that should repay. Why doesn't the government just hand out or make payments of trillions of dollars? But you realize that in our monetary system, the government does not have 
anything except that which they take from its people. The, co- the government can only pay by taking. <laughs> I would submit to you that that is theft. But not only that, but our country has spent over $22 trillion in the war on poverty since Lyndon Johnson that he enacted in 1964, $22 trillion. Money is not the answer. The history of, let me say this, on the subject of of guilt. The history of the American church is is complicated and, and tragic when it comes to racism. Christians owned slaves. Christians advocated for segregation, and they were wrong to do so. And I would submit to you that many were not genuine Christians. What was the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Were there genuine believers who owned slaves? Yes. But does that mean we throw out everything they say? Do we abandon Luther, the reformer, because of his views on the Jews? The reformers for their views on the Anabaptists? Do we abandon the apostle Peter, the book of Galatians, who refused to eat with Gentiles? No. We recognize that the saints of old, including the apostles, were flawed. They were flawed. They were sinners like you and me, incapable of great sin. What does the Bible have to say about identity? Identity. Now, at the heart of CRT is, is a concept known as identity politics. That you are primarily defined by, your identity is primarily grounded in one of these oppressed classes or as an oppressor. CRT says that race, being white and black or non-white, was a social construct. And here is, is actually where I would agree with them. They say that being black or white is a social construct. When you look at the scriptures, there is no grouping of people on the basis, on the mere basis of skin color. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, praise is given to Christ, and the praise says this, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Absent from that list is white, black, yellow, brown. I don't think those are biblical categories. There is a significant problem when someone primarily identifies themselves in their whiteness or their blackness or any other category apart from Christ. For the Christian, the child of God, we must reject any attempt to identify ourselves by our outward markers. That's what Paul says, isn't it? That we no longer judge one another according to the flesh because we are in Christ. And that is our primary identity. We are in Christ. The tweet that I read at the beginning of the message, the pastor identifying people in their whiteness or their blackness, I would say is unbiblical. Where was Christ in that statement? Nowhere to be seen. Because Christ is our life. Christ is our all. The identities of whiteness, blackness, white supremacy, oppressor, I would even say majority and minority, are fundamentally divisive to the body of Christ. Because those groupings, those identities divide. But Christ unites. In Christ, believers are made one in the body of Christ. We'll look more on that in Ephesians 2 next week. Redemption. What does the Bible have to say about redemption? Redemption in critical theory is all about this life. It's the social gospel repackaged. Christians who try to mesh 
the gospel of Jesus with the supposed gospel of justice. Right? There's one evangelical author, well-known, who refers to this as the gospel of justice. Now, we'd say there was only one gospel, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of redemption, salvation from our eternal damnation. Those who try to mesh the gospel of Jesus with the supposed gospel of justice cheapen the gospel, they cheapen our Savior. Because if redemption is all about this life and deliverance from oppression, then what kind of Savior is Jesus? if he is unable to deliver us from oppression. The Bible actually says, when you read the New Testament, that Jesus has planned oppression for his people. You know what Paul says in the book of 2 Timothy? That all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As Christians, we embrace that we will be oppressed, do we not? Because if the world hated Christ, they will hate us. There will always be sinful oppression in this world. So if the main goal is to remove oppression from this world, we are setting ourselves on a fool's errand. Isaiah 11, only Christ can bring in everlasting righteousness and justice. Christians should fight for justice, but let us not use the language of redemption to speak of justice, because that diminishes the blood-bought redemption of Christ from our sins and for eternal glory. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 to 8. Paul says this. Paul writes this to the oppressed Christians of Thessalonica. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God consider, considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When? When will relief come? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Beloved, when will deliverance come? When Jesus is revealed from heaven. That is our blessed hope. Our eyes need to be to the clouds looking for Jesus. And for those who adopt the ideas of CRT, their hope is in this life. And they are setting themselves up for frustration. Because deliverance in this life is impossible. So let me close here with, with several takeaways. Several takeaways. We must, as we've been saying through this message, we must reject critical race theory and embrace the Bible. CRT is insufficient and wrong in its diagnosis and solution on the issues of race and racism. And let us embrace what the Bible has to say on this subject. Now, I, I think Christians who are of the more compassionate flavor are susceptible to these ideas because they're compassionate. That's a good thing. They want to hear, to hear and to grieve and to listen, to grieve with those who grieve, and that's a good thing. So do not stop doing that. But the lie that they believe in is this, that in order to truly grieve and to truly love and to truly support and to truly be against racism, and to, to comfort those who are afflicted, they need to buy into what the world is saying on this subject. And that's where I would draw the line and say, no, 
grieve with them, but then embrace the scriptures and point them to Christ. Furthermore, the Bible teaches that sin is in the heart. So let us search our hearts to see if there be any pride, any sinful ethnic or sinful nationalistic pride. And I would qualify that by saying that there is totally a place for patriotism. That we are thankful for this country that God has given to us. But let us not primarily identify ourselves by our ethnicities or nationalities. We must not partake of any demeaning jokes that put down other people because of their skin color or their ethnic background. Now, this is a sin of youth. This is a sin of youth. So, young people, listen to me. If you claim Christ, if you say that Jesus is your Savior, coarse jesting, prideful and arrogant and, and demeaning language has no place in your mouth. It has no place in your heart. Because Christ is the Savior of the world. So put away those thoughts. When those jokes are made by your friends, don't laugh at them, but call them out. Because they have no place in the life of a believer. So we must reject CRT and embrace the Bible. We must also attack these ideas, but seek to win people. Listen, not, not everyone who sees racism as a bigger issue in this country than you is a Marxist. Okay? They are not a proponent of CRT just because they think that there is more racism in this country than you think there is. Not everyone who uses some of the terminology of CRT is a proponent of this ideology. So please be careful. Let us be quick to hear. Let us ask questions and draw them out and, and say, what did you mean by that when you said that? For those who are grieving, let us grieve with them and point them to Christ. We are seeking to win people over to a more biblical position. So let us be kind and gracious, not quarrelsome and angry. And when we do disagree with someone, let us do so with gentleness and kindness, as Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. And let us speak the truth in love. And finally, this is not here, but when it comes to our country, I think there are fundamentally two different ideas about how this country should go forward. This country was founded on the principle that all men were created equal by their creator and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And the government was there not to give them those rights because those rights were God-given. The government was instituted to secure those rights. Now, the American history is filled with grievous examples where, there has, where that has not been true for many people. The answer is not to tear the system down, but to rectify where we have been inconsistent as a country in applying that principle to all people in this country. Because that principle is grounded in the scriptures that all men are created equal in the sight of God. No one is better or on higher ground than anyone else. And I pray, I do pray, that not only the church would be a beacon of hope in a confused world, but that this country would be true, would hold those promises, fulfill those promises to every person in this country. And to do so, we are in desperate need of the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you just asking for your mercy and your grace upon this land.
We do not deserve it. We do not deserve the the stemming of evil that is breaking out in this country. But we pray that you would be gracious to us. And we pray that Foothill Bible Church would shine brightly the gospel of Christ in this confused and evil world. May we be quick to speak the gospel, to point people to the only hope that is found in Christ and him crucified. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.